Who doesn't love a well-cared-for garden, right? They're incredibly therapeutic. Speaking of gardens, as we look to scripture, we see there's a theme of at least four fascinating garden scenes. John has studied these four places of beauty and has pulled out the gospel good news from each of them. For instance, we have the iconic Garden of Eden that was meant to be a place of sweet fellowship with God. And in the New Testament, we have the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus pleaded with his Father. There's so much to these significant places of cultivation and growth. Let's join the message now with a lesson called The Four Gardens. It's always wonderful to go over and uh, to work with our church plants and our ministry partners in Ireland and Northern Ireland, and, um, but it's always good to come home, isn't it? So Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland has really become our second home, and uh, I'm really now, after seven years of working there, uh, really almost, not quite, but almost... I uh, have a default uh, a way of driving on the right side of the car, on the left side of the road. You just have to always remember this. Before you pull out, always look right. <laughs> we had a couple close calls. I only messed up one time where I crossed into the middle of an intersection in the heart of Dublin where I did an American turn through the middle of the intersection, going down the wrong side of the road with traffic coming at me, but ah, the Lord was with us, what can I say? (laughs) But um, it was a wonderful time, and uh, you would just be amazed at what the Lord is doing. More and more opportunities have now opened up to us since uh, this last trip, and more churches and more more work, and we were probably working about, I guess at times, probably about close to 12 hours a day, and uh, it was really exhausting because there's so much to do in a two-week time period, it's just not enough. And so I was talking to Mac, and it's like, Mac, I'm not sure two weeks is going to cut it anymore because there are more churches, and there are more invitations, and there's more work, and the church plants are growing, and Wow, it's a lot to do, but it's exciting. Um, And the wonderful thing about it is, is that all of you are part of it, even though most of you have not been over there yet to even see it. Now, I do hope at some point that some of you, and by God's grace, can eventually go and meet the people and see what the Lord is doing, but it's it's, um, it's kind of surreal, actually, because every door that we've walked through, we've never tried to open a door. We've never even looked for an opportunity. It just keeps happening, and so we just keep taking Paramount Church with us, and it's just amazing. Our little church plane over here is becoming known <laughs> in Europe like, who is Paramount Church? And I was meeting with one pastor, and after about an hour, and I was sharing, and we were talking and visiting, and he just stopped the conversation, and he looked at me, and he says, so why are you here? <laughs> and that was a great question, and uh, we had a great, a great time. I was with him for about three and a half, four hours, and uh, just a wonderful time. So uh, let's just transition to the, to the scripture, but um, I wanted to talk to you this morning. I preached this when I was over there, and um, I wanted to preach it for you again. I've preached this for you, but it's kind of tweaked it a little bit, but I think it's important. 
Because it gives us the overview of the Bible. Because as I've said repeatedly over and over and over here is this, is that it is possible to know many Bible stories yet miss the Bible's story, right? There are different ways that you can tell the Bible's story, the story of God's redemption, but one of the ways that you can do it is through the theme of four gardens. Through the theme of four gardens, because while I was in Northern Ireland, uh, we had the opportunity to actually visit a beautiful garden, in the contrast where we went to see this beautiful garden in this little small coastal village right on the ocean front was amazing because it was on the front was a was a hotel from the 1500s it was a castle um, and so the front of this castle literally uh, a stone's throw away was the ocean and the beach was nothing but black, huge black volcanic rock, and it was a really stormy day, and it was very foggy and cloudy, and these waves were huge, and it was just pounding this beach, and you just saw this raging sea pounding these black rocks, and it was very ominous looking. And, th- and then you went behind the castle, this, this, fifth, this, this castle from the 1500s, and right behind this castle, I didn't know it was there until my in-laws found it, and they told me I had to come and take some pictures with them. So I went back there, and behind it was this lush, beautiful, quiet, peaceful garden. It was absolutely stunning. And so as I was there looking at this garden, I was thinking to myself, you know, there's just something about a garden that we love, Right? Um, I read an article this past week in the London Telegraph, and it was entitled, Ten Reasons to Spend More Time in the Garden. And I thought, wow, that's appropriate uh, 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 title for the things I was thinking about. So let me give you the reason number 10. I'm not going to go through all the reasons, but here's number 10. It said, uh, it's good to be spending time in the garden because, number 10, it's good for the soul. <laughs> I was like, man... The London Telegraph is telling the story of the Bible, and it doesn't even know it. <laughs> but it said this. It says, gardens connect us with the land and with nature. They are, if you'll forgive the statement of the obvious, grounding. You know, you've heard, like, take your shoes off on the beach here and go walk and ground yourself and get close to nature. And oh, I don't know about that, but I do like to walk on the beach with my bare feet. It's better than tennis shoes. But, but... But grounding, in other words, you get established and, and you, you, you're connected. It says, gardens remind us that there are seasons, that nature needs time to grow and blossom, and that patience will be rewarded. A garden, I like this is my favorite part, a garden is a wonderful antidote to the fast-paced, on-message instant gratification world in which many of us live. Gardens are where we find rest for a weary soul, right? And so it says, it says this, it says, you want to be calm and relaxed. So take a stroll around in your garden. When I read that this week at the London Telegraph, I was like, that's exactly right. We love to take a nice, 
relaxing stroll in a garden, don't we? Um, we like taking in deep breaths. I, last summer, I had the opportunity, I don't know if I'll ever get it again, but I had it this once, I got to go see Monet's garden in France. It was the most spectacular garden I have ever seen. Now, the, the garden we saw up in Northern Ireland was spectacular as well because it had, a, it had a little mountain stream that was naturally cutting through the property. And you just close your ears and you hear the water, and it was just amazing. But it, we have this longing for a garden-like home because you know why? This is how we were created. God created and placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in a garden paradise, in the dwelling place of God, the temple on earth, where God was dwelling in communion with his creation, with his, with his people made in his image. And then listen, where man had perfect communion, not only with God, but with one another. And not only with God and one another, but man had perfect creation with all of, man had perfect communion with all of creation. It was like this, uh, this article that in the London Times says is that they had this perfect grounding, right? Everything was serene and perfect. And so in the Garden of Eden, we see our home as God designed it to be. You have God's people in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule, his law, enjoying his blessing. And everything was, was just perfect. And so we can tell the entire story of the Bible in a, in a progression of four gardens, and so the story of God's redemption and restoration of his people begins in a garden called the Garden of Eden. As we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see that initially Adam and Eve, as I said, had perfect communion, perfect fellowship with their creator, perfect communion and fellowship with, their, with each other, and perfect fellowship and communion with nature itself. Everything was in harmony. Yet tragically and mysteriously, the Bible never tells us why, Adam decided and Eve decided that life would be better if they lived independently of God, their creator. And that was a disastrous choice that they made. Because the consequence of their rebellion is that God banishes Adam and Eve from their garden home and he exiles them east of Eden. And so now Adam and Eve and all mankind find themselves east of Eden, looking back to what they had been banished from their original home. And life east of Eden is no longer under God's blessing. It is now under God's curse. And so mankind is no longer under the rule of God. Man, because he's no longer under God's rule, no longer enjoys God's blessing. And so because of their rebellion, Adam and Eve, as well as their posterity, you and me, all of creation itself comes under the curse of the covenant. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, in the day that you eat from it, the tree of choosing and the knowledge of good and evil, 
In the day that you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And if you read Genesis chapter 4, right after Genesis chapter 3, there's something shocking that Moses, the author, tells us. And he died, 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 and he died. And And it continues throughout that whole chapter. He lived 900 years, but he died. All of creation coming under the curse of the covenant. The death penalty that God has delivered as he said he would. And so here is Adam, hiding in fear and shame in the fig leaves that he's tried to do to restore this broken relationship with God, trying to keep the covenant of works now that it had been broken, but it was too late. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, God walking in the cool of the day as he had done with Adam and Eve, which had never been a threat to Adam and Eve, he comes to look for Adam and he calls out to Adam, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam, where are you? Not a question of location. God is omniscient. He knew where Adam was. It is a question of judgment. It is a covenantal question. Adam, where are you in relationship to me now that you have broken the covenant? Where do you stand? And Adam says, I heard your voice, Cole Hebrew. I heard the word of the Lord, and I was afraid, so I hid myself. And that becomes the response of every single man and woman who is naked before God. That is fully exposed in their guilt and shame before God. As he calls to us in our consciences and says, where are you in relationship to me? And we see that our self-righteous acts of fig leaves are not enough to repair this broken relationship. And so tragedy has struck And all mankind, like Adam, was only expecting the death penalty. Grace did not exist before the fall, you understand. There was no such thing as grace before the fall, but it wasn't needed. But now, after the fall, Adam and Eve were created to be law keepers, but they only knew if they broke the law, there was guilt and punishment. And so they only expected the death penalty. Do you understand this? There was no other expectation. It's like driving in Northern Ireland or the Republic. You only expect to drive on the left side, on the right side of the road, and make a right-hand turn looking left. It's your default way of living and thinking. You don't even think about it. That's just your expectation. But God, because he is a loving God in the first missionary goes forth, and he delivers the promise to send a champion seed, the serpent crusher, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel in the Bible, who will crush the serpent's head and open up a new and living way to the tree of life. That's like going to Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and driving on the right side of the car, on the left side of the road, having to look right and left because you're not sure which way to look because it's not natural to you. And that's how unnatural the gospel is. We default to the right side of the car, the law, because it was wired to us in creation to relate to God like that. But we are now on the left side driving on the other side of the road, and it's called the gospel, and it feels completely unnatural. 
because you don't expect anything from that perspective. You see, it's all backwards. They weren't expecting grace and salvation. They were expecting judgment and curse. And God has opened up a new and living way to the tree of life. And so from this initial promise of the offspring of Eve, the story of God's redeeming and restoring love unfolds, revealing his faithfulness to bring salvation, to redeem and restore rebellious sinners back home again. And so as the Bible begins to unfold later in redemptive history, you come to Genesis 12 in the story of Abraham, and God chooses a pagan Gentile whom Joshua 24 says came from a family that was worshiping moon gods. Abraham had no clue who Yahweh was. No clue. And yet he graciously chose him out of all the people on the earth. He elected him by grace to carry the promised offspring of the woman to bless the nations of the earth. And then after that, the Exodus, after the Exodus, God promises to Abraham, uh, his promises to Abraham are partially fulfilled in the history of Israel, which brings us to the second garden. Here's the second garden. The story of God's redemption and restoration continues in what's called a typological garden. It was a temporary shadow, a a picture of a preview of coming attractions, just like the Avengers movie that's coming out this Friday night, right? We've all been watching previews of coming attractions because I can't wait to see the Hulk. You know, he's my favorite. If I could be any Avenger, it would be Hulk, right? Hulk smash. It's just so cool, right? Um, I forgot why I even got the Hulk smash. Anyway, let's get back to the typology. Oh, yes, preview of coming attractions. The story of God's redemption and uh, restoration, bringing rebellious rebels back home again, it continues in a typological garden called Israel in the land of Canaan. And so by means of the exodus, God makes Abraham's descendants his very own people. You heard that this morning in the call to worship. We are his people, his treasured people, the sheep of his pasture. And so God's typological kingdom is the Jewish theocracy, which was called a land flowing with milk and honey. This temporary typological shadowy picture of heaven on earth. I want the microphone. I'm not going to sing for you. This, this, this typological kingdom, the Jewish theocracy, a land flowing with milk and honey, blessings everywhere, right? People having babies everywhere is kind of like Paramount. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have great church growth here, by the way. It's called the nursery, and our nursery is too small, but our worship center can still be filled up. <laughs> so we need to work on the worship center, but the nursery is doing great. Um, But this land flowing with milk and honey was literally heaven on earth. These temporary physical blessings were reminiscent of Eden. Where one spot on the earth, God has come down in glory to dwell with his people again. And God's people, Israel, were living in God's place, the land of Canaan, which was a new type of Eden... 
under God's rule, which is Mount Sinai, the law given at Mount Sinai, and when they obeyed it, they enjoyed his blessing, temporal, physical blessings. Not spiritual blessings, earning salvation. That's not why the Mosaic Covenant was given for salvation, but it was temporal, physical blessings to point people back to, to their home to look forward to the one who was coming to bring them back home again. And so the Lord's promise, these, this temporary typological garden, this promise took on greater clarity in his covenant promises to David, whom God swore this in 2 Samuel 12. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so now this typological kingdom will have a king who will reign forevermore, bringing blessing to this new garden. But this typological kingdom, if you continue to read the story, was temporary, just like Adam's probation was, was temporary in the garden. And eventually, God's people of Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant, Hosea 6, 7. And because of this, David and all the sons of David, the kings that you heard from the scripture readings this morning, from Ezekiel, all the shepherds of Israel, the kings of Israel. Shepherd means king. They all failed, and they eventually, and so eventually the typological garden kingdom fell apart. And after David and after Solomon, the kingdom splits, and the prophets come, and they continue to proclaim the coming of the offspring of, the, of Eve and the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of David. The son of David is coming. And listen, and though failed, the typological kingdom, this typological garden of Israel witnessed to the coming of the faithful Adam. And this faithful Adam would fulfill the probation. He would be faithful in the wilderness, unlike Israel who wandered in the wilderness. And he would come and earn the right for his people to finally, once again, eat from the tree of life. And so that brings us to the third garden. The story of God's redemption and restoration is fulfilled in a redemptive garden. A redemptive garden. The Bible says in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so listen, in the fullness of time, the story of God's redemption and restoration of his people is fulfilled in a redemptive garden, where did death enter into this world? In a garden. And listen, death was defeated in a garden. Death's defeat came as Jesus obeyed for us in the garden of Gethsemane. The garden of Gethsemane is the second Eden. And whereas the first Adam in the garden of Eden said to God, my will be done, the last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, not my will, but your will be done, thus reversing the curse brought about by the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Paul calls him the last Adam. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says that this Jesus, Messiah, he is the offspring of Abraham. He is the son of David, heir to David's throne. 
Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the wilderness temptation narrative is Jesus undoing what Israel did and their wilderness wandering, recapitulating the history of Israel in his own life, doing what the Son of God Israel failed to do, the Son of God did. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus is the true Israel. He is a long-awaited Messiah, Christ, promised by the prophets. He has been sent by the Father, lived the perfect life of obedience that Adam, Israel, and none of us have ever done. He perfectly kept every minute precept of the law, thus fulfilling all righteousness. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 and 18. He was actively obedient to the Father, earning the righteousness that sinners like you and I desperately need so that we can be acceptable in the sight of a holy God. You understand that the law has two parts. It has precepts that must be kept, and it has penalties that must be satisfied. And so Jesus, in order to justify you before God, had to live the life for you that you and I have never lived and perfectly keep those precepts every minute detail. He fully satisfied also the full penalty of the law because the law, if it doesn't have sanctions, has no power, right? And so he fully suffered his sanctions in our place and out of love, he voluntarily and graciously died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. Why? Because in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. Someone had to die to fulfill the law's demand. And so Jesus suffered the full curse of the Garden of Eden, the curse of the covenant. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. And then death's defeat came as Jesus was buried in a garden tomb. We saw this on Easter, that Jesus was buried. Why? To prove that he truly died. Why? Because the curse of the covenant threatened Genesis 2.17. And the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God says to Adam as the punishment for breaking the covenant, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore, the psalmist, speaking of Jesus in Psalm 22, verse 15, says of Jesus, you lay me in the dust of death. And so Jesus, by being laid in the dust of death in this garden tomb, brought to an end the curse of the covenant of works for his people, and he has sanctified the believer's grave forevermore. And then death was defeated when Jesus rose triumphantly from a garden tomb. This redemptive tomb continues. And good news, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, after having been raised, Paul says that Jesus was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses. And then, having defeated death, he ascends into heaven as the conquering king, where he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And unlike the kings of Israel that we heard read in our scripture readings this morning, Jesus, he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. 
Shepherd means king. I am the good king. I lay my life down for my people and I give them eternal life. Jesus is this great ascended king where he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Acts 1.9, Hebrews 1.3. And as a result of having accomplished his saving mission to redeem back disobedient rebels to their home again, God the Father, Philippians 2 verse 9, has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. And then he says in Matthew 28, verse 18, that God the Father has declared him to be the cosmic ruler of this whole universe to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. Therefore, as we said before I left for Ireland, when we go out in mission as a church, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, who is the head of the church. He has authority to redeem. He has authority to restore rebellious people for himself from all nations. He says in John 17, verse 2, that he gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. We heard that in our scripture readings this morning from John 10. And so listen, it is, here's the point in this redemptive garden. It is by his life. It is by his death. It is by his burial. It is by his resurrection. It is by his ascension. It is by his intercession. Hebrews 7, verse 25, for this great high priest lives forever to make intercession for you. It is by his intercession, and then it is by his glorious second coming that he is bringing his people back home again to the garden. And this leads us to the fourth and final garden in the story. Ultimately, the story of God's redemption and restoration of his people is consummated in a new garden. A new garden. Listen carefully how the story of God's uh, the story of the Bible, God's saving mission moves. It moves from promise in the Garden of Eden to partial fulfillment in the typological Garden of Israel to his fulfillment in the Garden of Eden and the resurrection garden tomb to his consummation in the new garden, which will be in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. So we see in the end of the story, this isn't a fairy tale. This is a story that has a glorious ending, but it's not a fairy tale. The apostle John shows us that God's new creation has a new garden where fellowship between God and man, and man and man, and man with all of creation is fully and forever restored again, and everybody is back home perfectly. And so at last, God's original gospel promise in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, is consummated in the new garden of the new heavens and the new earth. And so John, this is brilliant, in Revelation 21, he describes a fully restored, glorified garden kingdom, God's people, Christians from all nations, are in God's place, the new garden, the new heavens and new earth. Literally, it is now heaven on earth, and they're enjoying under God's rule his blessing forevermore. And so quite literally, heaven has come to earth. It is now heaven on earth. And so every dictator in communism who's ever tried to bring utopia through his own efforts, which has failed, 
Jesus, the good shepherd, the great king that we heard in our scripture readings, he brings it and does it. He brings heaven to earth. Listen to how John describes heaven on earth in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that's you and me, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, listen, the tabernacle of God. Where have you heard about the tabernacle, the temple? The Garden of Eden was a tabernacle, a temple, the dwelling place of God. You have the tabernacle of Israel, the typological temporary kingdom. You have the temple of David. You have the second temple, right? God dwelling amongst his people. And then you had Jesus, John 1. God has pitched his tent among us in living flesh. Jesus was the temple. Then he created the temple. Ephesians chapter 2, which is you and me and our bodies in the church collectively, the temple. And now, once again, at the end of the story, the tabernacle of God is among men. God is dwelling heaven on earth with his people again. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. Listen, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and they're true. If you missed it, in Revelation 21, verse 3, John quotes Genesis 17, 7. Why is that important? Because in Genesis 17, 7, that is God's promise to Abraham. And John is saying the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 is now consummated and brought to full reality in the new heavens and new earth in this new garden. God's promise, I will listen I will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. God's promise to Abraham spans the entire course of redemptive history, finding its consummation in this new garden, the new heavens, the new earth. As we finish, just reflect with me for a moment. The tree of life stood in the center of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, right? After Adam and Eve's idolatrous rebellion, God banished them from the garden specifically to bar them access to the tree of life. But now at the end of the story, the new heavens and the new earth and the new garden, God's people once again have access to the tree of life, and the tree of life appears again in the story. Revelation 22, verse 2, John says that the tree of life is in the new garden of God, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Why do the, God's people have this privileged access now to the tree of life from all nations, all tribes, all people groups, all tongues? Why? Revelation 22, verse 14, because they're justified perfectly. They're vindicated. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. God's people no longer covered in the fig leaves of self-righteousness, which is unrighteousness. 
but now covered in the robes of Jesus' perfect, justifying, cleansing righteousness. And so the promise and assured hope of the story of the gospel is simply this. All God's people will come back home again because Jesus, who is exercising his kingly authority, brings us home again by his life, by his death, by his burial, by his resurrection, by his ascension, by his eternal intercession, and by his glorious second coming and consummation. He will bring us home again. So when I return home from Friday night, wiped out in a horrible mood with a bad headache to screaming kids in a car, reality of this gospel hits. <laughs> I need grace. And so when I got home, our little nine-year-old daughter, Alexandria, looked at me and she said this. She says, Daddy, I was getting homesick for you and mom to come home. And then Stuart, our four-year-old little boy, he also said to me, he says, Dad, why did you go to Ireland? I missed you, and I wanted you to come home. There's something in all of God's people that longs to come home. Banished east of Eden, we now, in the promise of the gospel, in the words of the Nicene Creed, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We all want to go home. We all want heaven on earth. We all want to be in the garden again. Take a stroll with the Lord. Rest. Enjoy each other's company forever perfectly. And finally get a pet a lion without getting your head bitten off. <laughs> right? Listen to the hope-filled story of the Bible in 10 seconds. Genesis 3.17, you have the fall. Cursed is the ground because of you. Galatians 3.13, redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Consummation. Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. And so at last, Eden is not only restored, it is glorified. And communion with God, communion with one another, and communion with all creation is consummated. And until that day comes, our Lord has instituted for us the Lord's Supper as a foretaste, as an inbreaking of the powers of the age to come. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, remember this, that in holy communion, we have a foretaste of the life of heaven on earth now. At this meal, God's people, all who trust in Christ in all nations, are gathered together in God's place, the visible church, under God's rule, his law, and under his blessing, his gospel, both audible and visible, and also the presence of his spirit, who is the Lord, the giver of life. And in holy communion, weak and disturbed consciences come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And by this holy meal, we are kept, fed, nourished, strengthened, and assured to continue in our journey back home again.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of your redemption of rebellious and disobedient rebels. That would be all of us here today. And we thank you that by your promise and by your faithfulness, your steadfast love and mercy, we have been redeemed and restored and we are being brought back home again. I pray that as we come to your meal this day, that by the power of your Holy Spirit among us, you would unite us to the body and blood of your Son, our Savior, so that we can have a foretaste in the inbreaking of the powers of the age to come now, and that you would unite your church with your Son and with one another in all creation at this Eucharistic meal, this place of thanksgiving and joy, this visible gospel. Do this for your namesake and do it for our joy, we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Him We Proclaim podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already for all our new episodes. And if this message was just what you needed to hear, please let us know in the comments and share it with a friend.